Five scores! Rick Bod. We decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bod. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 45 of the Squid and Ultimate Leafs Fan Podcast. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Joining me, as always, my wicker, ringer, Ricky Squid Vibe. Jeez, I'm still working that tongue out, uh, Squid. I, I've only had it for a couple of weeks, and it's still breaking it in. But I would be remiss if I don't bring this up, because you're going to be you're hearing this or listening and watching this on May the 14th. And on that day, my co-host is his birthday, so I want to wish you a happy birthday, my man. How's things going? Things are good. Things are good, except for the golf has been shut down again in Ontario for an additional two weeks. I'm not happy about that, but I'm going to have to live with it. Well, the other thing you can live with, here's another little bit of good news for you, is it's starting today, we're going to be in a new format where our regular podcast will be seen on, heard on, all the usual podcasts were available. And we're now going to be joining a place out of New York called 365sportscaster.com. That show will air at 6 o'clock on Friday evenings moving forward. So you can watch us there and our other episodes we put on Friday nights as well. So we've seen all of that. So um, Squid, our guest today, is an interesting guy. He never played a game in NHL. He actually started his athletic career as a boxer until a friend suggested he should give hockey fighting a try. He learned to skate at the age of 19 and literally worked and challenged his way to a shot of playing minor pro as an enforcer. He was an inspiration for the popular movie Goon that actually was so popular it actually came with a sequel. Uh, please welcome to the Screen Milton Lee fan show, Doug Smith. Doug, how are we doing? Hi, boys. How are you, how are you guys doing? <laughs> We're good. Now, Dougie, uh, you're still um, Doug the Thug. We're going to call that great name. Um, very appropriately, Doug, you're, you became, you're a police officer. I am. I am. I work in a small community just south of Boston and uh, in the town of Hanson. And it's a great town. We have a great department and a lot of good guys. Now, Doug, your story is a fascinating one. Uh, you know, and I sent you know, I read your book and I thought it was just tremendous. Uh, number one, the fascination is you enjoyed fighting. Number two, you had no issue being referred to as a goon. As a matter of fact, you wore with a badge of distinction. Did you really get the bug watching pick up hockey and there was a couple of players or a player taking liberties with some of the other guys and then you thought did you better step in and do something well i mean i enjoyed watching hockey as a kid growing up but for whatever reason because i have an amateur boxing background i just enjoyed the fights and i mean let's face it the game has changed tremendously from i mean let's the the, the years that rick played for an example um to today and uh you know back then you could jokingly use the name goon. I mean, I wasn't a goon. I wasn't out there purposely and maliciously trying to hurt people. But, you know, that was just a tag that you would take. And yeah. we used it for the cover of the book and the title of the book, just kind of as a grabber, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I just always liked that aspect of the game, you know, how the, the guys police themselves. Rick? Yeah, well, I can remember it very clearly back in, in, in when I was playing and, and before how – you're right. The guys police the game themselves. And I, you know, I, I almost think that I, I don't want to say that they should go back to that, Doug, but I think that perhaps that was probably the best way to settle things. And uh, personally, I that's the way I feel anyway. Listen, back when you played, you had guys like, you know, Tiger Williams and, and, and Kurt Walker, who I know personally, uh, yeah. God rest his soul. And, uh, I mean, those guys were the ones that kept guys like you able to play the game that you were capable of playing and, and, and why the team would say make you a first-round draft pick. And um, today, unfortunately, I hate to throw this guy's name out there, but he's been in the news forever lately. I mean, you get guys like Tom Wilson, and, you know, unfortunately, if you don't have someone to combat a guy like that or at least step up to tell them to knock the shit off, uh, he's going to – rule the ice surface with with no repercussions it's it's sad but it is the way it is you're right and i i mean it, i we it's a topic we want to get into as far as this goes and i know you must have had a 
slight smile on your face, not from somebody that could possibly got hurt, but the fact that with that situation when it developed, he knew he had no challengers and he could just rule the roost any way he wanted. And he, and he did, and he, t he can take any kind of liberty he wants. But it's funny how everybody wants to rip on that guy but all 30 teams would take them on their team, that's for sure, outside of the one he's playing on. Or actually, you can add uh, Seattle, too. That'd be 31 of the 32 <laughs> teams will take them. So the idea being is that when the, police, when the players police themselves, the instigator rule, I'd love to see that removed at some point because look at what's going on with today's game with the slew footing, the hits from behind, players taking levers with other players. I'll tell you, if a guy like you sitting on the bench or whoever, or if it's a Stu Grimson or you pick whoever it is sitting there, they take a second thought before they take liberties with guys. Well, you know, I think guys like Tom Wilson are going to reverse the league's image, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, they wanted to try to go skill and finesse and get rid of fighting. I mean, let's face it, they, you know, they did. And a lot of teams kind of bit on that and they started to disregard the tough guys, whether they were in their minor league system or whatnot, and they started to draft and develop skilled players. Well, there's still a couple of guys floating around who are causing hell on the ice. And I think you're going to see teams saying to themselves, you know what, we have to at least find one guy, so to speak, that can kind of play the role, but also play the game, not just an outright goon. Um, so, I, you know what, I think these guys are going to end up turning the game around and bringing back toughness, so to speak, again, policing themselves on the ice. Well, it's yeah, I don't think there's any question about that, Doug. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, teams are, are going to eventually go, look, I mean, we got to play this guy. We're in the same division. We got to play him all the time. We need someone that can go up against this guy and, you know, settle the score, so to speak. Uh, right. The way it used to be. The way right. it used to be. And, and you need that neutralizing figure on the bench. I mean, he might not even get a shift on the ice, so to speak, but he's there. He's an insurance policy. And the other team's tough guy knows he's there and it kind of keeps him in check. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And, yeah. I mean, it does. And I mean, I think that the way the game is going, well, like our, our team ourselves, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they were a team that went for skill over brawn. And they've now had to do a complete reversal on that and add some brawn to the lineup. Otherwise, they're just going to get pushed around and get pushed out of the buildings by teams that aren't as skilled. But when it comes to playoff hockey, you've watched the Bruins for a long time, Doug, so you know what happens when it gets down to the crunch time and who wins. Well, we just saw it last year or the year before I lost track. But, I mean, you know, seventh game at the Garden in Boston and St. Louis came in and literally ran us out of our own rink. And there wasn't much fighting, so to speak, but there was physical tough play that the Bruins couldn't answer for, and they lost. Yeah. So I want to go back to you and and, and your career and, and, and moving up. Talk to us about, like, you started at a late age. Maybe walk the listeners through how, how that all started. And you became a skater at 19 to learn to play the game. And just talk about some of the challenges you're going through during that period. Well, like you had uh, mentioned earlier, I, I didn't play hockey as a kid growing up, and I, I didn't really put my first pair of skates on until after high school. I was 19, almost 20. And it was just to get on the ice, you know, and, and maybe pal around with my buddies who all played hockey, you know, pick up leagues Friday night, you know, whatever, skating on the pond. And But I had one friend of mine, he had played uh, high school and college hockey. He, he was actually a pretty good player. You know, he always said, you know, Doug, you got a boxing background. You know, I fought in all my local tournaments around the area, the New England Golden Gloves and, and stuff like that. And, you know, back in the 80s, you know, again, I'll always on this show, of course, revert back to Rick because he played in that era. But, you know, back then you could have a guy like a Doug Smith. He, he didn't have to be a great skater. But, you know, if you were willing to drop the gloves and protect somebody on your team, you could find a job somewhere, particularly in the minor leagues. And so for me, you know, I concentrated on skating for a couple of years. And for, uh, I'd say for a two-year period, it was all about balance and wasn't so much about carrying the puck and shooting and scoring. You know, it was about what would you do if you had the opportunity to drop the gloves and square off with someone, and, and, and how do you do that job properly? And I kind of – I just absorbed it and studied it for a couple of years, and I played my first organized hockey game in a league around my Boston area when I was 21. And uh, it was at that league that I got noticed by a scout, and he had said, you know – 
um, you know, I, I know your story. I know you're brand new, but I also know you're willing to fight and I might be able to help you out and get you a tryout somewhere in the minor leagues, you know, and it, and it, and it came to fruition, you know, down in the East Coast Hockey League. So, Doug, what what was the hardest part about like boxing? Obviously, you were good at and, and I mean, it's a little bit different, but yep. now you're on skates. Right. How hard was that to, to bring it from the ring to the ice? Right. Uh, in the fighting sense. You, you know what? It was never for me. Fighting wasn't the challenge because I had that background and, and I had the confidence of my ability. But again, it was the balance. And at six foot two, 250 pounds, you know, learning to keep your balance on skates at that weight. It, it wasn't easy. It was hard for me. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and like I said, it wasn't the fighting that bothered me. That's what I was there for. That's what I wanted. I wanted that job. You know, I, I grew up loving guys like Chris Nyland. And, you know, like I said earlier, I knew Kurt Walker personally. I got in the ice with him numerous summers working together. He would teach me things, you know, the do's and don'ts. And Paul Stewart and, you know, a lot of local yeah. Boston guys. So I, I was on the right track. I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, physically, it was the challenge of really keeping – my balance and my focus on the job at hand because I was so far behind the curve already. Well, what I wanted to do is I want to go back to some of those summer leagues and there's, you tell some great stories in, in your book about breaking in and knowing that you're playing with a lot of ex-pros, pros, college players, elite level players around the area. And these were high level games in the Boston area. You got yourself into those games, but you just didn't want to be a player. You wanted to be noticed. And so here you are going out on the ice trying to get noticed. And, you, and the only way you're going to get noticed is if you go at it with somebody and get somebody to drop the gloves. Talk to us how that all happened. And actually, one guy finally did um, sort of dance with you, and his name was Bill Whitfield. And that was kind of an interesting whole story. So tell us all about that and playing in the league. Right. Well, again, Rick, I mean, you know, guys like Jay Miller, Lyndon Byers, Chris Nyland, Nick <laughs> Patillo, Kurt Walker, I mean, these are all Boston guys, super tough NHL warriors. And again, you know, it was just my mindset was if I could just get a couple of goes with these guys over the summer, <laughs> win or lose. I mean, listen, I knew I was probably going to get the shit kicked out of me. Let's face it, you know, but win or lose, I might get noticed. And, and that's how I always looked at it. And I would chase these guys around. And, um, you know, I would challenge them all the time. And most of them would just tell me to screw, you know, it's a summertime league. We don't fight here, but they all appreciated what I was doing because they had all been there at one time or another themselves. And, uh, you mentioned a kid named Billy Whitfield. He had gotten to college at Northeastern and he played down in the old Atlantic coast league and the East coast hockey league. And, uh, and he was a kid that finally said, you know what, you know, let's go, I'll give you a shot. And, uh, we had a great fight. Uh, he beat me in the fight. But like I've always said, it, it was irrelevant because I got noticed by a scout who was watching the league. There was numerous scouts there all the time. And um, it, it panned out, you know. Well, he tells a funny story, Bill, and did you can pick it up from here, is that you guys fought. He finally said, and like, I'm sure these players are going, who is this fucking guy running around at us trying to fight? It's a summer hockey. We should be talking about we're going for beers after, not this. <laughs> right, right. And then all of a sudden, he goes, let's let's end this and fight this guy. So he fights you. He's in the dressing room getting changed. He's sitting there naked, he said, and all of a sudden the door opens and it's you. And he's thinking, oh, no, he wants to go again. And he came in and shook his head. Thanks for giving me the shot. Yeah, yeah. I sat down and we, I shook his hand. I said, you know what I mean? I said, hey, listen, I appreciate it. I know what this league is all about. It's summer hockey. You don't want some asshole like me running around. I said, but, you know, you're a guy that's established. You've already made it, so to speak. You're, you're, you know, you're in the minors and you, you're climbing the ladder. And I need that. I can't get in the minors until I get out of someplace like this. And, uh, and he was great, like I said. And even the other guys they chased around. I mean, to this day, I'm still friends with guys like Nyland and, and Jay Miller. Jay Miller wrote the foreword to my book. And, uh, and they all understood what I was trying to do. Um, they just didn't want any part of it because, again, it was just relaxed summer hockey. Like you said, after the game, we're all having a beer together out in the parking lot. <laughs> so, Doug, um, when you say their scouts notice you after that fight and everything, so, you know, what? where did it go from there? Where Where did you take it from there? And who were the who were the scouts with? And, and you know, where did you go from there? So my connection ended up being a guy named Paul Merritt. 
longtime scout for the Buffalo Sabres. And he got me down into the East Coast Hockey League, um, which at the time was like the bottom of the barrel pro hockey. But uh, he had a connection. He knew a coach, whatever it was, so to speak. And uh, just explained to the guy, the kid needs some, he, I mean, he's green. He needs some skating for sure, but he's going to fight anybody you want. And down there, every team, you know, probably had two or three tough guys. Because, you know, at that time in the East Coast League, if you weren't a fighter and you weren't a 50-goal scorer, you were never getting out of the East Coast Hockey League. It was just the way it was. Um, so Paul Merritt opened the door for me back in the day, got me down the East Coast League. And uh, that first year I was there, we ended up winning the championship of the league. And uh, the following year, I got a handful of games here and there. You know, I didn't make a career out of this. Um, and I know Rick doesn't really know my story all that well. But, you know, it was I was a call-up type of guy. I was like a hired gun. You know, I'd come in on a Friday night because some team's tough guy was injured or suspended. And they needed someone to go against a tougher lineup, uh, you know, across the, uh, across the ice. And, and I would, I would take that job. I would be that guy. And, um, you know, I got a handful of games in the American hockey league, which is obviously the second best hockey league in the world. So for me to sit back and say, you know what, just three or four years ago, I was skating on a pond and now I'm in the American hockey league. You know, it, I, for me, it was a dream come true, obviously. Well, Doug, but let's just go back to your first camp. So here you are coming in. Now, we know you're an experienced, but uh, the people looking at your resume but know right away this guy does not have a hockey background, so they can be thinking only one thing when you're coming in the size that you were and the reputation you had coming in, in front of you. How did that all go through, and what was kind of the response from some of the players? In it? But you had some frustrations trying again to get somebody who wanted to challenge you or go with one of your challenges because they knew why you were there. Well, camps were tough because obviously you're there to show your hockey ability, right? I mean, you're there to show your skating and, and can you carry the puck and, you know, shoot and score. I mean, we all get what training camp's all about. And there's not a lot of training camps where, you know, you got a guy like me who's specifically targeting and looking for the other team's either established team player that's been there a year or two or a new guy who's like me trying to fill this role. Um, so I certainly was looking for the other tough guys or even just a big guy who I could go after and just try to get noticed, you know, and, um, and my first camp was definitely tough. You know, I mean, I chased a lot of people, uh, tripped a lot, you know, city, city mouth, you know, like this right here, this is training camp. I chased this kid all day for two days in a row. until I finally just had enough. And I said, you know what, I got to make this guy fight me or I'm going home on the next bus. <laughs> Doug, I, I coached in the East Coast League for five years. Uh, right. I guess it was uh, 90, 93, I think, till 98, I believe it was. Yeah. And, you know, even then, I mean, you know, every team, like you said, had three or four tough guys. We were no different. The, the difference between, well, I always wanted a guy that could play the game. And play play on a regular basis, but that was tough. Like Dan Fornell was a guy we had, and, and a couple other guys, Jared Bednar, uh, who now coaches Colorado. Uh, so, but I mean, I, I can see, you know, back then I I understand because I mean every team had three or four guys that were designated tough guys. Right. Right. And again, um, it, you know, it's the time of the era, so to speak. You know, people today, you know, they don't understand the way it used to be back then. And, and I get that. And I'm obviously I'm not narrow minded about the whole thing. But again, you know, what I was dealt, you know, I, I tried to excel at. Now, I was going to say to you, now your first camp you're going through and you finally get a couple of guys who, who fight you. How are the players treating you off the ice? Were guys receptive to this and encouraging you? Because, you know, you didn't, let's face it, as we've said a few times, it, it was clear you did not have the hockey background and you were there for one reason. But how are the players responding to you, the non-fighters? Right. You know what? In all seriousness, I think most non-fighters are, are receptive to you and they're good to you because they realize that you could be the guy they keep and you could be their protector. And... Uh, I was no threat to any of those type of guys and I wouldn't even look at them on the ice. You know, that, 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 that's not my angle. I don't want the guy who's scoring 50 goals. I, I, you know, so that's established already, but off the ice, I mean, you know, 
you know, hockey players, everyone's got a great yeah. personality. You know, I could fight a guy and go out and have a beer with that same guy 20 minutes later. It's just the way hockey is. It's a different world. And, uh, and, and trust me, that ha that's happened to me. And I'm, I'm sure Rick has said the same thing. He's probably seen it happen a thousand times. You know, guys will punch the shit out of each other. And next thing you know, you're running into each other that night at the bar somewhere and you're, you're hanging out and talking. It's just the way it is. It's on the ice. You know, it's never personal. But, uh, you know, I, I always got along with my players, you know, whether I fought them or they were just a regular teammate with skill. Now, it's, funny, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember Rob Ramage and I played together in the WHA in 78, 79. And then, of course, we played against each other for many years. And I can remember him breaking sticks over my arms and I'd be giving it back to him. And, you know, we, we never actually had a fight, but we like he he was ruthless in front of the net. Uh, when, and that's where I kind of camped out a lot. But then once the game was over, we'd meet at the back of the gardens and we'd walk up the street and, and have a bite to eat and a couple of beers and and just talk about our families and things. So you're right. right. I mean, hockey players. Uh, I don't know if there's any other sport where the people that take part in it are as good as hockey players uh, for that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a hard time believing it. I mean, let's face it. I think hockey players are a, a unique breed, and they, they come from all walks of life, obviously. But, I mean, you don't find a lot of hockey players, back in that day anyway, that were just gifted something, right? They all came from farms. They all came from hard lives. They all had to bust their balls to get where they were at. And I think they appreciated their environment more than just other sports players did in different, you know, sports around the world. Um, Doug, you, uh, when you're going in the ECHL, Dave Soltz was brought in, and he's one of the bigger names as to, to help promote the league because the league was really just sort of getting off to the ground at, at that time. So for you, did you use that as a little bit of an inspiration? I'll give you two parts of the question here. I'll just I'll combine a second question with this. Did you use that as a bit of a shot to inspire you a little more? Because figuring from the entertainment fact that they'd be looking for, it would maybe give you a better shot to make the team. And secondly, Paul Stewart, who you mentioned already, went through a similar experience as you when he went to the Quebec Nordiques training camp, and he tried to face up to Wally Weir to try and get his shot. Four times. He fought Wally four times, I believe. <laughs> you know what? We know that people don't get out of their seats and go for a bathroom break and uh, a drink when a fight happens. We know everyone stands up. They get excited. And, uh, you know, when I first got into the East Coast Hockey League, you know, it was centrally located south, you know, south United States. And I was in North Carolina where all the rednecks and hillbillies were. They didn't care if we won the game or lost the game. It wasn't a fight. If there wasn't a fight, they felt like they got ripped off their $3 ticket that they paid for. So, I mean, a guy like me, I had to do my job, obviously, to protect my team. But I knew there was an entertainment value. And, listen, I have proof. I still have scrapbooks with little sticky post-its from the general manager and the owner of the team that would have said, here's an extra $100 because Saturday night you had three fights and the fans went crazy, and I know they're going to come back again next week to watch it. I mean, Rick, I mean, you know, you know that people love back in that day anyway. They they love that stuff. Of course, they want to see their team win. I mean, I don't want to get carried away, but I mean, you know, they love fighting. And well, you know. yeah, you're right, Doug. Especially down where you were, and I, yeah. well, I was in South Carolina. And I mean, they didn't, they knew nothing about hockey. I mean, they didn't know what offsides was, icing was, but boy, they certainly loved their fighting. And I got to tell you, when a fight broke out, like you said, there's nobody nobody got out of their seats. I mean, well, they did to stand up to watch the fight and yeah. clap and cheer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, boys, how about this? How about uh, last Wednesday, the uh, Ranger rematch against Washington? How many people? That was probably the biggest viewing audience in the NHL all, all year for games. Right. And, and don't tell me not one person who watched that game wasn't giddy when the puck dropped and all of a sudden you got like three or four scrums at once going. And there were people were like, wow, because you never see that. That wasn't what people thought. They thought there might be one or two fights total the whole game, not right out of the chute. That's 
No, right. that's 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 the entertainment factor. So yeah. now getting back to you, so you make training camp, you get your fight, you get there. Talk about the first game when all of a sudden now everything you've worked up for, now reality is setting in and you're going to be put to the test your first game walk because you must have been pretty anxious that whole day and leading right up to game time. Yeah, I mean, I was certainly uh, – I was nervous. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, like I said, it just wasn't too long ago that I was skating on a pond and here I am going to get my first, like, pro hockey game. And, uh, and I'm going to play against a team. It was the Knoxville Cherokees back in the day. And, yeah. and they're, they're two tough guys with two draft picks. One kid was drafted by the Kings. And uh, I forget where the other kid was drafted. But they were both tough kids. And they both eventually made it up the ladder. They played in the American Hockey League as tough guys. And, uh, and I had to go against these two guys because they just ran our guys out of the building the week before. Um, so I'm by myself. I'm the only gunslinger. And uh, I get one guy in the first period, and I beat him. And I get the other guy in the second period, and I literally knock him right down on the ice with a punch, break his nose, he's out of the game uh, right then and there. So my introduction to pro hockey, my first game, my home fans and the, the home audience was like, I could have had a parade down Main Street. The next day. They loved me. So it was a huge introduction for me, successful, thankfully. <laughs> While you stick with the team, so walk us through life as a minor leaguer, and I and I mean that with all respect, minor leaguer as a pro hockey player, riding the iron lung from town to town. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's face it, you know, you're not eating filet mignon for dinner as a minor leaguer. You you're riding buses, you know, those sardine cans that they shove you in. You know, ours sucked. It was awful. We had the exhaust coming up from the back. You know, the back of the bus had a shitter. The door was broken, so the thing flapped constantly. It was like a fan. You all used to be like nauseous by the end of the ride. You know, and what are you eating? Yeah, you're eating pizza at some gas and sip station off the highway. You're hitting every deer in town on the highway. But I loved it. I, I, I Like, I wanted the front seat. Like, I wanted to see everything. It was incredible. Um, you know, guys playing cards. The stories, right? Everyone had a story, a background. Um, everyone had a VCR on the bus, right? You'd watch Slap Shot until you were nauseous from that. <laughs> it was all good stuff, right? It was it, it was incredible. Well, I can tell you, Doug, that it, things got a lot better by the time I got coaching in the <laughs> East Coast League, and we had those buses with the with the bunks and everything. Uh, I had my own little area at the front of the bus where I had my own TV and the whole works. And yeah, uh, so things got things got a lot better after <laughs> in, in, yeah. in the nineties. Yeah. I'll still take what I got. It was really an unbelievable experience. So now, did you get? Did you ever come to a point? Maybe through the first year, we're starting to feel pretty good about yourself. Did, did, did you relax and you belong and that you were really were one of the guys? I mean, hockey players, as we've talked, no, really go out of their way to make other players feel comfortable. But did you really? And But don't forget, you don't come from a hockey background. So this must have been fairly new and maybe very refreshing for you, the way the guys responded to you, what you were doing for the team. Well, you know what? I, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense. I think the guys really respected me, so to speak, because they knew my background had you know finally come public and where I'd come from and, and how short of a time it took me to get where they had been skating and playing hockey since they were little kids. And um, never mind the fact that I'm doing the job that nobody else wants to do, right? I mean, it's a dirty job. It's a tough, dangerous job. And, uh, and I'm going to try and protect every one of those guys. So, you know, in the locker room, there was a lot of love, a lot of respect, and uh, and believe me, it helped me tremendously because it made me try even harder. Mm -hmm. I didn't want anybody to get hurt on my team. I didn't want anyone picked on. And, um, you know, that camaraderie that you get, it's like family. And, uh, you know, when the season's over, a lot of guys go one way or the other, and you might not ever see them again, and you, you try to stay in touch, and you, and you but you miss that gel that family gel that you had and it's an experience that you just it's tough to describe to people that have never been there yep get it well, i mean I, no go ahead squid no i can tell you i got a i got a 31 year old son doug that's well this year he's playing in fort wayne because cincinnati didn't go into the uh the play in the east, east coast league this year he's 6'6 250 wow and i gotta tell you he is loved by his teammates because I mean, he's not just a fighter. He can play. Right. But, 
But if anybody gets out of, out of line, he's he's going to be right there to help his teammates, and they know that. And right. uh, and he doesn't mind doing it. Right. And listen, and, and, and Rick will probably agree, you know, even the guys that are skilled, we're not, I'm not calling them pussies. I'm not saying that they can't defend themselves. It's just not what they do. Mm-hmm. And they'll stand up for themselves. I mean, you can only take so much shit from somebody. But the point, though, is, you know, it's when the real tough guy decides to make a point to go after the skilled guy is when a guy like, say, you know, Rick's son or, or Doug Smith steps up and says, uh-uh, you're not going after him. You want to <laughs> dance? You dance with me. <laughs> So now year two in ECL doesn't, after you win a championship, year two doesn't go quite as well as you expected it might. Did you ever get frustrated and almost ready to tie to throw it in or throw the towel in, but you kept going? Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I was grateful for what I had. You know, I mean, even if that first year was my only year ever, I mean, I accomplished a lot. And sure uh, yeah, and my, my second year, I went to camp in Cincinnati for uh, the Cincinnati Cyclones, and I got cut. And um, I, I came home and kind of, you know, twiddle around doing odd jobs for a couple of months. And then I got brought into uh, Johnstown in the East Coast Hockey League. I got, a, I got a call from Steve Carlson, of all people, right? Steve Carlson. I've watched this guy a thousand times in Slapshot. Yeah. Calls me up, you know, then he's like, Smitty, listen, I got about a dozen games left. We're probably not going to make the playoffs. But every team that we face from here to the end of the season has an asshole that's bugged me all year. I'm still willing to do the job because I'd love to have you on my team. And I was like, yes, God, thank you. Where's my plane ticket? I'm on my way. So to get a call from Steve Carlson and get the green light to go out and fight anybody I wanted to fight, I mean, talk about a dream come true, right? So, uh and I'll tell you, practices were incredible with Carlson because he used to help me, right? He'd show me little tricks of the trade. And, um, you know, I mean, talk about incredible memories. And, and I'm still friends with Steve to this day. We do a lot of charity events together with, you know, with me obviously representing the movie Goon and him representing with the, the other three bo- the other two boys with, with Slapshot. So, I mean, you know, salt of the earth type of guy. Yeah, now- he is, and the whole family is, and – and Dave Hansen, I played with him in yeah. uh, Birmingham in the WHA. Yeah. Wonderful individual. I've met right. Steve and Jeff, and right. uh, I got to tell you, they're just unbelievable people. Right, right. And then of course I watched his brother Jack. I watched Jack as a player. You know, Jack was a tough guy. You know, playing for Minnesota way back in the day and a couple other NHL teams. And I mean, I mean, like I said, it was a it was glory to meet these people and, and get to play for them. I mean, Jesus. Now, now, Dougie, you ended up in uh, the Senior League in New Brunswick. Now, this is going to touch another card with my co-host, who's from Prince Edward Island, and you guys had some real battles with yeah. those guys. So tell us, yeah. talk to us about that experience. You must have been shocked at how good and how crazy that league really was, or were you? No, I knew nothing about this league whatsoever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from Boston, and I, I don't know anything about this men's senior league in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island and – and so I get a call from this team in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Yeah. And, and you know what? Their story was their story was almost like today's hockey. They were a completely skilled team, and they would go for the Allen Cup, I think it is, yeah. every yeah. year. That's and the shit kicked out of them by some other tough Quebec-type team with all kinds of tough guys, and they'd get bounced out every year. So this year they said, you know what? we got to bring in some tough guys. And – I don't know my I don't know what my connection was. I think I got up there because a friend of mine who was a scout for the Winnipeg Jets um, knew the head coach in Moncton. I think it was Dave Farish at the time. Mm-hmm. And Farish. Dave Farish said, "Listen, there's this league up here. We can get him up, and he can play and fight in this league until his heart's content. And he's close by. If I ever need him in Moncton, maybe I can call him up." So there was some promise there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to this league and, uh, you know, like you said, Prince Edward Island Islanders, they were called, and they were loaded with tough guys. They had three <laughs> or four guys that were really tough. Uh, one guy played in the NHL. One guy was a boxing champion, and he was the goalie. He fought in the Canadian Olympics <laughs> as a boxer, but he was a goalie. So – being who I am, I show up. I'm like Yankee Doodle from, you know, United States showing up to Quebec and in and, and this area where no one, hardly anyone spoke English. And, um, but I got real quick 
an idea of who was who on each team. And I just kind of systematically challenged every single tough guy, every single game to try to get established and make a name for myself. And, and it, it went pretty good for me for the most part. Well, that was a time uh, when the Allen Cup was big and senior yeah. hockey in Canada was was like Huge. really, really popular. And, yeah. You know, I mean, they were fly guys in for weekends, uh, not just tough guys, but I mean, good players. too. Right. Like they would fly them in and pay them a thousand dollars a game. Yes. And you know, it was no was different so- with it was no different than with tough guys. Right, our team was so different at the time. Our team had a couple of guys that would be gone all week. They were working in like I don't know mines or lumber yards or something up there, and and they'd only come in just to play the game. And uh, some guys were goal scorers. We had a legendary tough guy named Jacques Mayotte, and Jacques, oh, I know the name. Yep, Jacques, Jacques <laughs> played for the Quebec Nordiques. Yeah, and uh, they would they brought him in and uh, to kind of assist me. Um, I was kind of. At that level, I was probably a heavyweight, where Jacques was like a super heavyweight and well-known in that league. And so uh, we had some great fights, great battles, and we won a lot of games because that team all of a sudden had some toughness to kind of, you know, extinguish the intimidation factor that had always been presented to them. Talk about the fight with the goalie. So that... That boxing goalie, that was set up before the game even started. We got introduced as an amateur boxer, and here's this guy who's a Canadian uh, Olympic boxer. And um, we met each other before the game, shook hands, talked, and um, and that was it because he's a goalie, right? Yeah. So game goes on. It's like the third period. It's probably like seven to nothing, the other team. And guess who gets his first shift of the game? Me. <laughs> the fans are calling for me. They want to see a fight. So I'm looking at the players. Who's out there? Who can I go against? And whatever goes in my mind, I didn't even know. But I skate all the way down to where the goalie was. And I said, hey, let's go. And he takes off his thing and takes off his shit. And we squared <laughs> off. And we had a pretty good go. Well, that was a mushroom cloud not only throughout the league, but throughout the audience and the fans, because here you are fighting a goalie. But people knew who this goalie was. Like, he wasn't a non-tough guy. He was a legit heavyweight. Fast forward a week later, we're now going over to Prince Edward Island. And the whole newspapers, the media had built this game up like you could well imagine. Are these two going to go at it again? And sure enough, we did. We went at it in warm-ups. We came out without any goalie pads on, didn't take one <laughs> shot because he knew we were going to fight each other. And we kept eyeballing each other across the ice during the 10-minute warm-up. And the Zamboni starts to come on the ice to do the ice, and his team leaves one end, and my team leaves the other end. And he and I are both kind of standing at each other's ends just looking at each other, and we just kind of started to gravitate to center ice. And the shit came off, and – the place was going bonkers, pre-game brawl, fight. And uh, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Well, Before and- we go any further, Doug, I got I to gotta share something with you. Yes, please. I played junior in Sherbrooke, Quebec. So yep. I had two guys from Boston that were on my team. Uh, one was my roommate, Chuck Tuplin, who actually, his, one of his parents was from PEI, one was from Boston. And he was my roommate. The other guy was a tough guy by the name of Mike Breen. I don't know if you ever Oh, my God. Him. I I know Mike Breen. We both – he lives in the two towns over from me. <laughs> okay. He, listen, he's a high school hockey coach today. And he's oh, yeah? Also, yep. And he, he has coached the Situate High School hockey team, which is south of Boston, for the last 20-plus years. Um, he works in, a, in the town of Situate. He's like the supervisor for the highway department. He's a great guy. Yeah, so he played with me, and we're at the Memorial Cup in, in Vancouver. We're playing the new Westminster Bruins, who probably had the toughest and biggest junior team in, in the world. And uh, we're in the warm-up, and they're skating over into our zone all the way to our blue line in the warm-up. And Mike Breen goes up to Barry Beck, 
And he says, if you guys don't, get, in his Boston accent, he said, right. if you don't get out of here, I'm going to bite your goddamn ear off. <laughs> <laughs> and I, then, just, I just took a picture of you. I'm sending it to Breen. Yeah. The next thing you know, yeah, they're back in their own zone. <laughs> right. So, I, I, Breen, Mike was older than me, and I never got to play with or against him, but I certainly heard a lot of stories that he was legit tough guy. And, uh, and crazy. Could handle himself. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's great. Doug, you finally get the call to, to go to the AHL and play. Talk to us about that, and you end up finding old Frankie, the big tough guy, and talk to us about that whole experience. And I think that was one of your highlights, if I can put words in your mouth. Um, so long story short, I hadn't played in over a year anywhere. You know, just no call-ups or nothing. I wasn't established on a team at all at that point. And um, out of the blue, I get a call from the Moncton Hawks. Dave Farish is the head coach. He remembered me from like a year or two earlier being in that men's senior league and, uh, you know, asked me, are you still playing? I got a, I got a tough weekend coming up. My tough guy, Kevin McClellan, Stanley Cup champion, he's injured. He can't go this weekend. Would you be willing to come up? We're playing the Toronto Maple Leafs farm team, and they got a couple, two, three tough guys. Frank Bialois, yeah. Ryan yeah. Ryan Vandenbush, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Todd Gillingham. So really tough guys, and uh, and I said, geez, I said, uh, I told Dave, I said, uh, can I get back to you in the morning? I said, uh, you know, I, I got to just figure out work and family and stuff. I said, but uh, you know, and he said, yeah, no problem. Well, the real issue was this: two days earlier, before the phone call, I had had surgery. I had had like a big cyst under my arm that had kind of ballooned up and they had put me under and, and surgically removed it. And they had put in a couple of drainage bags taped to my side with these tubings that would allow the fluid to drain. I know mental, but anyway, I talked to my buddy, Adam, who was the kid that got me on skates back in the day. Adam Fatazio was my neighborhood best friend. He wrote the book going with me. And I said, and there's Adam, and yeah. um, and I said, here's my opportunity of a lifetime. What do you think? He was like, what do I think? Of course you're going. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to say no? So I call Farish back. I said, I'm in. Fly me up. I, I go to Logan Airport. Who do I bump into at Logan Airport? Andy Brickley, who's the captain of Moncton at the time. He's injured himself. He had come home for a couple of days to visit his family. He's going back up to Moncton. So I sit next to him. He tells me all about the team I'm going to play. Tells me about Bialois and Vanderbush and Gillingham and, you know, give me the skinny, the best that I can absorb. So I get into Moncton. Um, I'm skating warm-ups, scared to death. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm looking at these guys. Now, This is these guys are obviously bigger then the East Coast League guys, you know how it works. It's just a whole yep. different level. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at Bialois, and I'm like, man, he's one scary-looking motherfucker. He's a <laughs> guy. And um, and so after warm-ups, I'm sitting in the locker room, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I got this bag on my side. If I get into a fight and I get my shirt pulled off me or whatever, what's going to happen with this bag? Like, it could get torn off me. I'm going to look like a freak show. So I quickly go into the men's room. I go behind the stall door. I lock the stall. And I, I break through the incision that was holding in the tubing. And I start to pull the tubing out. It ended up being about, I don't know, seemed like forever long. Like I felt like a magician pulling a ribbon out of a hat. And it finally got the goddamn thing out of me. And I was like sweating profusely. I was almost dizzy from just that thing getting pulled out of me. Anyway. First period, second shift, Ferris sends me out, lines me up next to Vandenbush. So I challenge Vandenbush, but he basically tells me to screw because he goes, I think he basically said, hey, listen, you're going to be on the next bus home tomorrow. See you later. <laughs> he was, he was going to waste his time, and I didn't blame him, right? Why would you? A uh, couple of shifts later, first period, Ferris sends me out again. I line up next to Baya Lois, and I said, you know, you're the champ. Are you going to give me a shot? This is my first game. I got to fight somebody established. And he simply just said, no problem, Smitty. Just keep it clean. And I understood what he meant. Keep it clean. You know, don't 
don't gouge my eyes. Don't pull my hair. Don't be a cheap guy. Just keep it clean. And, um, and he gave me my shot. And listen, I didn't do all that well in the fight. I took a lot of punches, but I, I kept standing. And uh, I, I did my job for the most part. I fought the guy that no one else wanted to fight. The rest of the game was quiet. We actually won the game. And uh, I, I went home with about 25 stitches in the corner of my eye. It was beautiful. <laughs> you were, I think you're wearing a great number there, too, aren't you? 22? <laughs> I think that was actually 23. I didn't have a say in my jersey. Um, it just—it was just there at my locker. And I listen. They could have gave me number zero or thirteen. I could care less. So now, so Doug, how did? So then, what happened after that? And you, you just work sort of got in the way. That work thing always does. But that was kind of the end of it after that. And you just you yeah. got opportunities, but you couldn't give up the work job. Yeah, I mean, it was like I said earlier. You know, it was one of those things where I was grateful for the little bit that I got. It was—it was certainly a, a long shot story. Uh, underdog story, no doubt about it. Uh, but, you know, one game here, three games there, two games here, called up on a weekend every once in a while just to fight. Um, I wasn't getting enough games that I could make a career out of it. Yeah. And I had to find a real career, which is why I got into police work back in that day. You know, I took the exam and went through the academy, and, and I always wanted to be a cop. And, um, you know, like I said, the hockey thing was an unbelievable um, experience. Who would have ever thought, right? Um, so, you know. Well, I'll tell you who would have thought: a producer and director in Hollywood. So, tell us how the movie all came about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy. Uh, so, Adam and I, like I said earlier, Adam always said, "You know what? You should write a book. Your story is unbelievable. It, it's wild." Um, and I was like, "Listen, I'm not writing a book. Like, I barely <laughs> made it through high school. You can write the book." <laughs> and so we put a book together, basically in, a, in like a chronological order. We started from the beginning to the end. Uh, we used the title Goon, like I said, as just like a grabber. Yeah. We used that picture on the cover of the book, which was taken literally five or ten minutes after the Bia Lois fight in the American Hockey League right there. So the cover speaks for itself. You kind of know what you're going to get into if you see that cover. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy who's on a writing team in Hollywood. He said he was, in an, he was in an airport one day, and he saw the cover. He said he bought the book. He read the whole book from the beginning of the flight to the end of the flight. And he said when he got off the plane, he called his writing team. He said, listen, we got to make a movie about hockey fighters, about hockey enforcers, because they've been such an intricate part of the game forever. And the fans love them, and their teammates respect them. And, and it's just a job that's so dirty but so rewarding. And we can use this guy's book for like a background. And that's how it kind of got going. We got a call from Hollywood. Uh, some producers wanted to buy the rights to the book and, and make a movie. And Adam and I were like, what? Like, what are you kidding me? I mean, you know, I'm a ham and egg. And you're going to make a movie out of my book? So, you know, trust me, we were like really excited. Now, how involved were you? Not as much as I thought I was going to be. I was yeah. more of a consultant. Um, this was kind of their baby, you know, um, the guy in the middle of this picture here, Jay Baruchel, was yes. the director. Uh, the guy on the right, Sean William Scott, he was the um, actor who played me, uh, yes. portrayed in the book, so to speak. And uh, I didn't have any say in the script, uh, just a little bit of questions here and there, like what would you do in this situation or what would you do in that situation type of thing? They kind of wrote their own script and it really wasn't the book's an autobiography, obviously, but the book uh, certainly doesn't do justice to the movie, which is eh, it's kind of corny, kind of slapstick. And it certainly wasn't the Doug Smith story, but they just used my book, let's say loosely to get a script written. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, it was a sure favorite because the kid, everybody loves the thing and they made a sequel. So they did something right. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I'm almost going to like throw up my throat, but there's actually talk. There could be a third movie. Oh, God. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, you, well, you know, it's funny because we had Dave Hansen on the show and, uh, you know, him and Rick played together in Birmingham and he talked about when he did Slapshot, they, when they were working together, he was telling about all the stuff going on. It's not as glamorous as you think, hanging around the set all day. But they were, they wouldn't say certain lines they were told to say because they said, we wouldn't say that as hockey players. So they actually had some input. 
and they listened. And that made yeah. it actually a little bit more realistic in ways. So yeah, they. I think the uh, the writers, the producers, the directors on my set, uh, and I got to go up there for about a week um, during filming, and and they would let the guys kind of ab lib their their lines. They'd give them a guide, but you know when you're shooting a scene. 20 30 times to get the right angle and the right you know that's really not me skating <laughs> rick rick i know you're horrified by me and my story. that really wasn't as bad as i was but anyway um, like, uh, california golden seals with yeah right skis. right but you know they they really did a good job as far as uh like say guys like this that we're seeing in the photo in the picture here all these guys played hockey somewhere so they made the hockey look realistic. Um, but, you know, this guy here in his role as a tough guy, I, for whatever reason, they went on an angle like he just couldn't skate or couldn't play that well, but could certainly fight. So that's kind of the way they went with it. But that then led to you to get um, – you ended up coaching somewhat, and you actually worked with the Bruins in, in that capacity, helping with some of their players, did you not? I did. I was fortunate to work with the Bruins for eight years. In fact, I worked with four or five NHL teams as a guy that would uh, basically be in the minor leagues. I worked in Providence. And, you know, with a boxing background, I always knew how to fight. I always knew what to do. I just physically couldn't do what some of these guys could do because they were tremendous athletes. And uh, I always knew I could at least coach and I could mm -hmm. teach guys on the ice about balance about punching power and just for guys who were they were geared for that role i would work with them now i certainly would work with other people too i would work with college kids and i would work, work with european players to say listen there might be a time someday where you get into a scrum and you better know how to defend yourself i mean i'm not going to turn you into a fighter but just that you know how to protect yourself and again rick i mean you know you've You've dropped your gloves plenty of times just to at least grab and hold on to the other opponent. There might not be any punches exchanged, but if you didn't have a good grab, that guy knows that. And he might take advantage of you real quick. So you got to kind of know your shit out there, whether you're a skilled player or not. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to, you know, get a little stint in pro hockey as a, as a trainer, as a coach. And, um, you know, I got the opportunity to work with some really great guys that went on to the NHL and have incredible careers. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know early in my career, I fought a ton. I mean, like I led the WHA 248 penalty minutes when I was 19 years old. Don't worry. I know all about you. But, <laughs> but I mean, I got beat up all the time. But that wasn't the reason I did it. The reason I did it was like, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what you do to me. Right. You're not going to run me out of this building or any building. And your ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I was going to say is that we want to thank you, Robert. Just the time is of uh, essence is always the case. We could talk to you forever, Doug. But I just want to leave this final thought. That, and by the way, you did some officiating too. So that's another part. that it's <laughs> good did. to be the important, right guy to be officiating. That's yeah, I, sure. I did some. Uh, I was a linesman in the minor leagues. I got to do some minor league um, officiating and uh that was incredible. It was, it was funny to be on the other side and, and yell, let him go. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I'm going to leave you with is, as your final thoughts here, is I just finished reading Stu Grimson's book, The Grim Reaper. And even though you hear, and I'd like you to comment on this, even though you had a very short stint at the pro level, came for you didn't come from a big hockey background, no, you knew the game. Stu came up through the ranks all the way through, played, you know, minor, junior, did the whole everything and, and worked his way right up to the level. The one thing about it, and this is what I want to leave the listeners with, is the fact the philosophies that you guys had as enforcers are a code that you either get or you don't get. In other words, you, you, you've had street fights. So did he have street fights? But there was a code you guys carried onto the ice where you never went into a fight angry to keep your control, um, putting a word in your mouth again. And how you never would attack somebody who couldn't defend themselves. And I think that's really admirable for what you guys did. And I know Squid can probably comment on that because he was one of the guys who would play with guys like you. Well, like I said, I mean, I never uh, – I, I wasn't there to play hockey. Let's face it. I was there to be a team protector. And fighting wasn't 
what I was scared or nervous about. It was other things, like I said earlier, balance and, you know, getting maybe pulled down off my skates and looking like a jerk and looking like, uh, you know, I couldn't do my job. Mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is a code. And uh, a guy like Stu Grimson, a guy like Doug Smith, you know, you don't go after Sidney Crosby. You, it's just not your job. Um, so, you know, again, there is a code. You abide by it. And it's the guys that break that code that make waves on, uh, you know, in the league and, and on their team, unfortunately. Final thoughts, Squid. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I, you know what? I had a lot of ad, admiration and uh, I just love the guys that played that role because it was it, it was a an awful thing that they had to do game in and game out is go out and protect their teammates. But I give them a lot of credit because 99.9% of them knew the code and had, and heard, had heard by it. And so I have a lot of respect for those guys that back in my day and before my day that, that played those roles because, uh, you know, if, if they didn't, then, you know, I might not be still playing or I might not have played as long as I did. Right. And, you know, a lot of those guys, I'm sure uh, you've heard, you know, both of you, you know, some guys did it like me. They liked the job. They wanted that job. But there are other guys like, you know, I'm sure Stu Grimson, when he was growing up, he didn't anticipate being a tough guy. He wanted to be a hockey player, but he figured out, he figured out somewhere along the line that, listen, my only shot to get into the show is to be a tough guy. And I don't really want to fight. Like, I don't want to get punched in the face for a living. But if this is my meal ticket, I got to go for it. How can you not? So I believe me, I, I, I'm compassionate with those people because I, I get where they've been. Well, that's great. I mean, Doug, we, uh, we really appreciate you coming on with us today. Your story is fantastic. I mean, I love the book. And for all the, for those of you, that, there's the book, if I can hold it properly. You want to get this one, it's definitely worth a read. It's great entertaining and it's, it, it just speaks to the, it doesn't matter if you start the game at six, you start the game at 19. Hockey, when it's in you, it's in you, and it, and it sure brings out the goodness in a lot of people, as we see with you. You're a pretty good guy, Doug, and uh, we loved having you on, and thanks for joining us. Well, Mike, I appreciate the opportunity. Rick, it's an honor to meet you. Uh, finally, I should say, I mean, you get to watch someone who's been skating around pro level since the 80s. Um, you're certainly a legend, and uh, again, I appreciate being with you boys today. Great. Uh, thanks again, get, Hopefully, I get down to meet you and uh, see Mike Breen at the same time. I'm certainly going to let him know as soon as we hang up that we spoke. <laughs> thanks again, Dougie. Okay, boys, thanks. thanks. Okay. Bye -bye. Well, what a great story. <laughs> great story. I mean, you know what? It's a, uh, it's a feel-good story, really, when you it think really about it. It really is. You know, I mean, a guy that just, you know, had a desire to, to, to play pro hockey. He had to do it a different way than most people do. But he, he did it, and uh, and like I like the fact that he said I don't regret any of it. I I, I loved every minute of what I was doing, where I was, and so on. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's and and again, it just goes at the you know for if anything, the point I wanted to get across is that there is honor in every job that's done, and the respect the players do have for the jobs that guys like Doug and the Stu Grimsons of the world had to endure to keep yeah. their careers going and to, and to make other guys' careers last as long as they did, as you pointed out. So yeah. speaking of careers lasting, uh, how about teams lasting? We we're down to a couple minutes here. How about the Maple Leafs? The Stanley Cup playoffs begin in the next few days. Uh, let's just keep it real simple. What do the Maple Leafs have to do to advance past the first round? Goaltending. I think they got everything else. I think they added good players, uh, they added depth, they added what they needed at the deadline and, and in the off season, it's going to come down to goaltending. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's going to be the whole issue because, you know, Montreal is going to come out guns a blazing and they've got nothing to lose. Toronto has everything to lose for, for this one. So I think that the, they got to get that first one under their belt and it's going to all come down to how they, the pipe, the play goes between the pipes. And that's uh, always the case in the Stanley cup playoffs. The only thing I'll yeah. give everybody is the fact that there's always upsets. The first round this year mm -hmm. will be no different. There'll be somebody, but it might be a little tougher because usually teams have their positions cemented 
with lots of time left to sit players, whereas this year, going for first place overall, all the four division leaders have not been able to take the foot off the gas pedal. So, and there's been teams that have been scrambling to stay in the playoff race that for that fourth spot, but it's not like an 82-game schedule. So maybe, maybe we don't see that this year, but there's always surprises, and that's what makes the playoffs so great. Uh, I, I can't see the Leafs going any further than five games, winning it in five or, or less. That's just my my prediction. Well, I hope that is right. I don't like to make those predictions because I don't want to jinx them. All I care about is whether they win, and I don't care about all the rivalries they talk about and all that stuff means nothing to me. They could be playing my Markham men's team for all I care as long as they win. <laughs> and, guys, we just want to thank you again for tuning in. Uh, as we said, you can pick this show up now Fridays at 6 o'clock on 365sportscaster.com. All your regular podcast uh, sites that you usually find us on. We want to thank you guys for joining us and looking forward to having you next week. Next week's guest will be Steve Thomas, and he'll definitely have some great stories for us. Thanks again, guys.